Luke chapter 15, verses 13 through 20. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So this morning we're complete, completing concluding, completing, our four-part series called Four, uh, Four Liberating Truths. Four Liberating Truths, that was, that's what we've been walking through for the last few weeks. And uh, basically, we've been sort of unpacking these, these four different summary statements of biblical truths. These four summary statements of gospel truth that, that we said, you know, we should be preaching to ourselves. Four liberating truths that we should be preaching to ourselves. And, and this big idea that we've been harping and returning to again and again is that, you know, under beneath, uh, beneath all of our sinful behavior, beneath all of our negative emotions is always some lie that we're believing about God. A lie about who God is, how he relates to us. And so that's why we need to, to preach to ourselves. Like, preaching is not just my job. Like, that's what we need to do to ourselves. Uh, and the reason we need to do that is because we are prone to, to lead with and to think with our feelings, aren't we? Like, if, if my life happens to feel out of control because I'm just having a bad day, uh, then, then we conclude, functionally speaking, we believe that, you know, God maybe must not be in control. And so I'll try to control it, or I'll grow worry, or I'll grow anxious, right? And so our job now is to determine uh, what are those lies that we're believing, what are those lies that we're believing that we're listening to? And then on the other side of that, what are the truths now from God's word that we need to turn to? What are the truths that we need to, to, to preach to ourselves, to our own hearts? And again, by way of preface, like it's important for, for me to say that these four liberating truths that we're kind of walking through are, are from a book that I've been reading called You Can Change uh, by this English pastor named uh, Tim Chester. He's a pastor in the Acts 29 Church Planning Network that is supporting uh, our work here. And uh, he's the one who created this, this helpful grid. Like I'm not smart enough for that. He created this, and, um, and the reason we're going through this is because it's been so instrumental in my own life, uh, and hopefully you guys have seen that too. Um, so to recap, on week one, we looked at our first liberating truth, which was that God is great, uh, and so I don't have to be in control. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Secondly, uh, the second week, we looked at the fact that God is glorious, uh, 
And so I don't have to fear others or seek their approval. Uh, last week we looked at God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere like for my satisfaction. And, and this week we're turning to our fourth and final liberating truth, which is that God is gracious, and so I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to earn my salvation. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. And so that's what we're looking at today, this morning. Uh, We'll be spending all of our time in Luke 15, that, that, that passage that we read this morning, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, now, if you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with that story, right? The prodigal son. This is a story that Jesus taught when he was like on his way to be crucified on the cross in our place for our sins. And, and this story that Jesus told is arguably like the, the most famous parable that he told right? It's the most famous, widely known, the most broadly loved story, parable that Jesus ever told. Like Shakespeare wrote numerous plays based on this parable. And this parable, this story of this this prodigal son, of this wayward son, is both a great example to us of how amazing God's grace is, but also about what happens to us when we don't believe it when we don't understand it, when we're not grasping it. It's an example for us of how amazing God's grace is, but also about what our lives look like when we're we're not resting in that. Uh, And so, like, what it it looks like when we let the fruits of unbelief uh, creep in and we functionally forget that God is is gracious. If you remember, we we, we talked about that earlier on, that, like, it's one thing to intellectually believe something about God, Right? But it's something else entirely to, to functionally believe it. To where what you know is true about him and that like some truth that you know in your head actually burrows its, its way down into your heart and affects the way that you think and the way that you you, you, you the way that you feel and the way that you you behave. Uh, and that's what we're getting at here. And so we're going to walk through three points today. First, we're going to look at what is the grace of God. Then we're going to look at what it looks like when we don't functionally believe it. And lastly, we're going to look at why his, God's grace just changes everything. Why it changes everything. So first, what is the grace of God? What is the grace of God? Let's look at uh, Luke 15, uh, starting in verse 11 together. He said, now this is Jesus speaking, Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. So he's telling a story here. There's a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And this father, he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, we'll we'll stop there for right now. So here's what's happening, right? There's a father here who happens to be an amazing father. 
He's this amazing father. And when Jesus is telling this story, this parable about this father, um, we, we need to recognize that, that this, this father is supposed to be, in the story, a picture for us, a reflection of, of God, our perfect father in heaven. That was the purpose of parables that Jesus told. A parable was always some story that was told to teach some greater spiritual truth. And so in the story, this father, this amazing father, has two sons that we're going to hear about throughout the passage. The younger son in verse 12 is, he's kind of what theologians call like a total jerk, right? Like he says and does some pretty awful things to his pretty amazing father, he dishonors his dad. He like walks up to his, his, his good dad and he says, hey, I want your estate. I want my money, right? Like the, the, the second son inherited a, th- a third of the estate. And so he's like, I want a third of the estate right now. I want you to liquidate your assets. I want you to sell some of your property. I want my money now. I want what I'm entitled to when you die. And I want it now. And you see, which in their culture, this was another way of saying, like, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. He's basically saying, look, I love your checkbook more than I love you. I want to cash out on my inheritance and take off with it. Like, I don't want you. I just want your stuff. I want what you can give me, right? This reminds me, like, this morning, uh, Alyssa told me that my, my, my daughter, my three-year-old daughter, Geneva, she walked into our room, and I, I heard this conversation going on uh, on the other side of the wall, and Geneva's like, uh, Mommy, you're the best mommy in the world. And Geneva, or Alyssa's like, wait, really? Like, you really think that? And she's like, yeah, Mommy, like, you're, you're the best mommy in the world. You're, you're just the best. And I could, like physically like hear Alyssa's heart melting on the other side, right? And she's just like, oh, honey, that's so sweet. And then after Alyssa was telling me later that after a long pause, Geneva goes, no, mommy, is there, is, is there something you want to you wanna tell me? <laughs> uh, and Alyssa's like, oh, Geneva, like, like you're, you're, the, you're the, the sweetest daughter in the world. And Geneva's like, oh, like, thanks, mom. Just really loving it. You see, like, I mean, she's three years old. She doesn't know, right? But like, she see, she what she wanted was something in return, right? She was saying that she was kind of going through the motion. She was saying something, but she she didn't really in that moment. Like, what she really wanted was something for herself. And see, as a dad with two young kids like that, like if one of my kids looked me in the eye and said, like this son did, hey, like. I, I, I wish you were gone. Like, I, I, wish, I wish you were dead. I just want what you can give me. I don't really want you. Like, that would absolutely crush me. That would crush me. But you got to understand that Jesus' audience especially would have been just appalled by this part of the story. They would have been appalled by this start part of the story. You see, because especially in that day and in that culture, a father in this culture, like a patriarch who has a large estate, would be expected to respond to a son like this by disowning him only after giving him a pretty thorough beating, right? Like that's, and, and, and sending him away. Like, there were actual laws in place in this day and age that allowed fathers to do that and protected them, right? That's what would have been expected if a son like this so dishonored a father like that. But look what this dad does. We're told in verse 12, 
he divided his property between them. And property back then was, wasn't just the stuff that you had, but your property was actually tied to your, your, your social standing. Yeah, your property, how much you had, where your property was, uh, kind of determined like what kind of man you were uh, uh, to, to, your, to your neighbors. And so this son is literally asking his dad to tear his life apart, to give up not just his property, not just his stuff, but his social standing as well. And this dad, he does it. He does it. He divides his property between his sons. And then the younger son takes the loot from his father. He takes his inheritance and he just absolutely blows it away. He spends it and just blows it off. Verse 13 says, he squandered his property in reckless living. So we're talking like his entourage, parties, prostitutes, bars. Like he's hitting the party scene with his, with his friends, spending money like it grows on trees, right? And he does this until he comes to the end of himself. It says that a famine hits, which is kind of their version of like a, an economic downfall, like a recession, right? So like... Gas prices go up, real estate goes down, his money's already spent, and whatever he has left has lost its value. He's upside down on all his investments. He's hit like the lowest of the lowest point of his life. And how often does this happen to us where we, we find ourselves like, like binging on these sinful habits? We run for, for kind of this quick, instant fix but end up down the road in this, in this worst situation and dealing with the consequences. And this dude, this son, the younger son, the one job that he can get during this, this, this recession is to work on a pig farm for a foreigner, which is, by the way, the worst possible job for a Jewish kid because pigs are supposed to be like unclean animals. You couldn't even eat them. So there was no bacon back then. So it's already like this dark and twisted world. And he's completely at the end of himself. And this younger son is so hungry. He's actually considering if he should eat the food in the pig pods. Look at verse 16. It says, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. And so at this point, He's like that beggar that, that everybody just walks by and ignores. No one, it says, gave him anything. No one did a thing for him. You see, the last time that this guy received a gift was from his father. We don't know how much time is spent from the time that he left home and the time he reached the end of himself, but the last time that this man received a gift, an act of kindness, was from his, his father, He's literally down in the mud, his face in a pigsty, and he realizes what an idiot he's been. He's looking around. He's assessing his situation. He comes to his senses. Look at verse 17 with me, 17 through 19, where he says, But when he, when this, this younger son, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? but I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's thinking like, look, well, I'm about to die for lack of food and shelter. My my dad's servants, they're not hungry. They're not homeless. Like, like my dad's feeding, feeding them. He's, he's housing them. He's this great father, and I've been this proud idiot, right? That's what he's thinking. He's like, I'm, I'm a bad son. And he thinks, you know, you know I, I, I got to go home. I got to go home. The servants are better off than me. I'm not worthy to be his son, but maybe, maybe he'll be kind enough to hire me as a servant. Maybe he'll, he'll let me do some work. Maybe he'll let me scrub the toilets. I'll just be happy with that. See, this is what we call repentance. He has this repentant heart. He understood his sin. He acknowledged it, and then he had remorse over it. He was heartbroken over it. He said, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against my father. That's repentance. Repentance literally means like turning around. You see, he, he literally turned his back on his father, went and indulged himself over here, and now he's turning back around and he's saying, I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to go back to my father. He awakens to the truth. You could say he, you could say he got woke, right? He awakens to the truth. Remember, a son that acted the way that, that this guy did would have likely been, been beaten, been disowned, right? Like kicked out of the family. Like that's how his severe his actions were. That's what you would expect a father to do to a son like this. He has no right to come back to his dad. He has no right to come back to his good father. Like to even go back and ask his dad if he could be a servant was already expecting grace. To be received as a servant, to to ask to be a servant was already an expectation on his part that his father would be gracious toward him. Now, look how the father responds in verse 20. He arose, this is, this is a, the, the son arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He saw him from a long way off and his father felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. Now you almost get this picture that, that this dad was like watching from far away right? That he had his eyes locked on the horizon, checking like every single hour, seeing if his son's going to come up over the the horizon, right? It says that when the son was a long way off, the father saw him and he ran to him, he embraced him, he kissed him. When he sees him like this dad, he, he just runs. Now, patriarchs, men like this, patriarchs with estates in this culture, like they were not supposed to run, they weren't supposed to run. Like running, that's what children did. That's what, that's what youth did. That's what like young boys did, but not fathers, not estate owners. And in a culture like this, a father wouldn't run like that because, you know, you had to pick up your robes, put them around your, your waist. I mean, just imagine this guy like hiking up his skirt uh, with his undergarment showing and his hairy legs dangling down, just like running down this hill. It's not like this dignified picture that you get, right? It's, you, you, if you saw that, if you saw someone doing that like on, on, on your street, like hacking their skirt up and like running down, like you'd be concerned for them, right? 
This was an undignified thing for this man to do, culturally speaking. And so like men like him, estate owners, they, they didn't do that, but, but this man did. This father did. Most men wouldn't do that except for this father. You see, this great man, this amazing father, he can't wait to welcome home his son. He can't wait to reconcile with his son. He just shows no reservation whatsoever, and he starts kissing his son. Now, when it says he, was, he kissed his son, like in, in the Greek, it's sort of like this, this kissing again and kissing again and again and again. He's just overwhelmed with fatherly affection. Kissing again and again and again. Like when I, when I read about that in my word studies, I was like, I can resonate with that, right? I've got pretty cute kids. I love to grab their, their chubby cheeks and kiss them again and again and again. Uh, my daughter, you know, I mentioned she's about to turn three. Uh, so she's at this point where she like wipes her mouth and says, Dad, uh, which I know is her way of saying like, Dad, do it again, right? <laughs> so I do it again, right? Like I, I understand this, this feeling of just being overwhelmed with affection and love for your child. You can't stop kissing them. That's what this father's doing to his son that dishonored him, that offended him. Now read verse 21 with me. It says that the son said now to the father, the father's embracing him and the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly or bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his, his feet, bring the fattened calf and, and kill it and let's, let us eat and let's celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So the son says here, I'm not even worthy to be your son. <laughs> I'm not worthy to be your son. Just, just take me as your servant. But you notice it doesn't even register with the father. He's like, I'm, the father's going to have none of that, right? He calls out to his servants and he says, bring the finest robe. Get the family ring. Put it on his finger. Get everyone together. Put shoes on his blistered feet. Kill the fattest calf. We're having steak for dinner tonight, right? Like my son is home. My son is home. He once was lost, but now is found. He once was blind to his indulgence, but now he sees. We're going to celebrate. We're going to party tonight. He's welcomed. This son is welcomed, not as a servant, which is what he was hoping for, but as a celebrated son. As a celebrated son, he was hoping to get welcomed as just a mere servant, but he was welcomed and celebrated as a son. You see, the grace shown to this younger brother is nothing short of extravagant. This is the kind of grace that God shows us. This is what grace is. What did this son deserve? What did he deserve from his father? He deserved nothing. He already gotten much more than he deserved. He, at this moment of, of being reconciled where they meet again, this son deserves nothing. It would have been 100% within the father's rights to give his kid nothing. Like, why do we deserve, what do, what do we deserve from a, from a holy and perfect God? 
Those of us who are not holy and not perfect, what do we deserve from a holy and perfect God? Where we've sinned against him in the, in the things that, that, that we do against him and the good things that, that we fail to do? Like, what do we deserve from a holy and perfect God? We deserve nothing. We deserve nothing from him. The Bible says that the wages of sin are death. That's what we deserve. We don't just deserve nothing. We actually deserve death. We hate being confronted with that truth, right? Like, the truth is that, that, but the truth is that anything above death is God's grace shown to us. Life itself is a gift of His grace. Anything other than death is grace because it's what we deserve. Yet, God pours out continually undeserved, really ill-deserved, unmerited grace. How often do we actually stop to think and consider and remember that every waking moment that we live is, is a moment marked by grace? Like, I get to breathe. I get to work. I get to know and to be known in relationship with a lot of amazing people, I get to enjoy God's good creation. Like, this is all grace. All of life is grace. How often do we stop to, to, to think and, and remember that? This is why we as a church family, in, in our order of service, in, in our liturgy, that we, we take moments, uh, these regular rhythms, to, to pray and confess our sins before God, to remember our need of grace for Him. Because you've heard Oscar say like several weeks that um, the, in our order of service, we're, these are just like public rhythms that we hope you'll take home with you and turn into private practices. That's why we do the prayer of confession and the assurance of pardon. Like we need, the, we need this, this, this discipline, this habit of stopping in the midst of a busy, crazy world where everything is like vying for your attention to stop, to be silent and remember that my life is marked by grace. So now let's look. What happens when we forget God's grace? What happens when we forget God's grace? Or the second point, what does it look like when we don't believe that God is gracious? What, is this, what does this look like? How does this flesh out? Now, if the story of the younger brother reveals God's grace, now in the older son, in the older brother, we actually see many characteristics of what it looks like if you're not, if you're not truly believing that God is gracious. We see the fruits of unbelief in the older son. Look at verse 25 with me. It says, Now his older son, the father's older son, was in the field. He was working, and as he came... And drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, like what's going on? And he said to him, the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. 
But he, this older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and then entreated him, pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, this older brother reeks of self-righteousness. He reeks of self-righteousness. See, the younger brother was self-indulgent, and far from God, right, until he repented. He was self-indulgent and far from God. This older brother is self-righteous, but equally far from God. And so what's our liberating truth again? That God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to earn our salvation. So we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to earn our salvation. The older brother is not living in that reality. He hasn't grasped that. He's not enjoying that. He was living in the father's home, but he forget, forgot that that was a gift in and of itself. He's acting like he, he should have earned it. The father showed grace to the younger brother in obvious ways, but for the older brother, like having a roof over his head, a job to handle, a calling on the estate, food to feast on, and an inheritance down the road, like he received grace too. Notice the father pursues him also, right? The brother doesn't come into the party, and the, and the, and the father comes out and entreats him, pleads with him, hey, come in. The father pursues him just like he pursued the younger brother. But this brother responds differently to the pursuit of the father. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want this grace. And so what are the fruits of unbelief in the older brother? First, we see that he's angry. Verse 28 says, he was angry and refused to go in. He's basically ticked off because the younger son received things that he didn't earn. But isn't that the point of grace? Right? The older brother also received things, was receiving things that he didn't earn, yet he wasn't thankful for that. Like, this older brother is just as lost as the younger one. He's judgmental. He's angry. Why? Because he has this good report card, and the father, God, he feels like now owes him. But then that means that he's not obeying the father because he loves him. He's obeying the father to get stuff. See, he just wants the same thing that the younger brother does. He's just getting it his own way, right? He doesn't truly love the father for who he is. He wants to get something from the father. Or if you're not angry, maybe you, like, you think you need to prove yourself to God, right? That's another fruit of unbelief where you think you need to prove yourself. You're trapped in this joyless obedience and this joyless duty. Verse 29, the, brother says, the older brother says, Look, these many years I've served you. For many years I've served you. You see, the older son, he, he looked great on, on the outside, on the surface, but his relationship with, with his dad was not a healthy one. He didn't see his dad as a loving and gracious father. He saw his, his dad as a like means to an end. He wanted to prove himself to his dad. Another fruit of unbelief is where you, you take criticism or failure badly. You see, when your identity is wrapped up in your performance, then you're going to be quick 
to defend yourself, right? When your performance feels like it's attacked or like it's not enough. When your identity, this is, this is important, like when your identity is wrapped up in, in how good you are, in your performance, then you're going to be quick to defend yourself. Like if you receive, but if you, like if you receive your righteousness from yourself, if you're self-righteous rather than righteous in Jesus, then you'll get really defensive when someone points out your flaws or your sins or areas that maybe that you need to grow. You see, when, like, so for, for me, and with, with my job, if, if I found my identity, and I, I struggle with this, where I find my identity on, on, on how well I do, like, as a pastor or as, as a preacher, right? And if I'm wrapped up in that, then what happens is when someone criticizes my sermons, then I could, I could take it personally or, like, try to defend myself, or I can rest in the grace of God and just, like, learn from that. Learn to not take it too personally, but to be thankful for that and to seek to, to grow in that, to come to terms with the fact that, you know, God can use me even, even when I biff it, right? You guys remember, like, uh, a, f- a few weeks ago uh, during the, the scripture reading, uh, Teresa was up here, and the, uh, the scripture that she was reading uh, didn't match the scripture on the, se- on the screen. And I was, like, the whole time, I'm just like, oh, no. I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll sh- I mean, it's okay. Like, I'll show her grace. Like, it's her first time kind of thing. And then I realized after the sermon, I'm like, oh, this was my fault. I put the wrong verse in, in the slides on the, the screen. I gave her the right reference, but I, or the wrong reference. She was reading from her Bible, the wrong reference, and I, you know, so like it didn't match up on, on, on the screen. Um, and it's funny, like I was, I, was, I was telling some people afterwards, I'm like, uh, oh man, like I, I thought this was Teresa's mistake. I didn't realize it was mine. And every single person I talked to was like, oh, like I, I assumed it was your mistake. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, all right, like I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take that, right? Um, learn from that. Another fruit of unbelief is when, when we just have this sense of like anxious performance. Anxious performance. You, you know, he, he tells his father in, in, in verse 29, he says, look, I never disobeyed your command. This anxious performance. I never disobeyed your command. This is where we try to prove ourselves by like keeping the rules. Like that's the point, right? We try to prove ourselves by keeping the rules where we're marked by conformity. Like if I dress the part, if I act the part, if I stick to the script, to the traditions, like so often we can fall into this trap. We can fall in this trap where we're saying, "No, like I've, I've been doing, I've been doing ministry. Like I, I never disobeyed. I'm serving." And we forget, like this brother did, that it's all grace, and that we begin to measure ourselves up against other people, like this brother did. Is my performance better than the next guy's? Is the way I'm serving is it more than the next girl's? You see. Our, we see our works as this, this joyless duty. But when we do this, when we do this, it reflects a belief that the way that we get into God's book, right, is by doing the right things. If we do good Christian things, then shouldn't I be blessed? Shouldn't I be free of burdens? You see, but on the flip side, we think also if we do bad things, then God's going to punish us, right? If we do bad things, then God's going to punish us. But, but if you're in Christ, if you're in Jesus, then there's no punishment for your sins. 
There's no punishment for your sins. Jesus already absorbed that. He said, it is finished. There's no purgatory. There's consequences for our sin, but there's no punishment. What happens when we get into this thinking is that we reduce the gospel, the good news of God's scandalous grace, we've reduced it to like this system of works where we either believe, look, I've earned it, or, or we like blame God, or we try and cover our sin. We try and feel right about ourselves through our, our service. But see, what we need to understand and what this older brother failed to, to grasp, to truly functionally believe, is that your performance is not what matters. Your performance is not what matters. Jesus' performance is what matters. What matters is not what you do. What matters is what Jesus has done. That's the point. That's the good news. This is the gospel. You see, he performed and he performed perfectly. The lie that we tend to believe is that we need to perform. But that makes ourselves self-saviors, right? It's not our performance. It's his performance. The liberating truth is that God is gracious and so we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to be anxious about our performance. We can just enjoy and receive his grace. Nothing you can do will prove yourself worthy in God's presence. That was the point. That's why Jesus came. He came because there was nothing we could do to prove ourselves as worthy before God. And so he did that. Nothing you can do will enter you into a right relationship with him. Jesus did that. You might try and prove yourself to God and to others or to yourself, but really it's not about that. It's about what, what Jesus has done. And so underneath the surface, we, 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 want to, we, want to, we need to understand this. Underneath the surface, like we need to understand that that's, like, that's the sin behind the sin when we're feeling like proud and self-righteous. Jesus was perfect. He was full. He's complete. His work was perfect. His work was full. His work was complete. There's no space for your contribution. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you know that God has accepted the full payment of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that he completes anything. He completes it all. He completes the standard, and you can't add anything to it. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. And when we fall into the trap where we think that we can prove ourselves, we need to say, we need to preach to ourselves, like, we need to say, look, God, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've lost the point. I'm sorry I thought, I'm sorry I'm acting as though, as though it's about me, as though it's about my performance, as, as though it's about what, what, what I do. I'm sorry that I get upset when I see the next person over who I think is I'm a better person than receiving more grace and more gifts than I am. I've missed the point. It's not about me, Jesus. It's about you. And so I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to say thank you. Thank you that you performed perfectly when I could not. That's what we need to preach to ourselves. That's the liberating truth we need to return to. God is gracious, and so we don't have to prove ourselves. So we'll close by talking about why the grace of God changes everything. What is it about this grace that changes everything? You see, the liberating truth that God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves, is good news for us. 
It's good news for both the younger brother types, but also for the older brother types. You see, some of you, some of us in here are younger brother types, right? Like you're self-indulgent. You're trying to make sense of the world. You, you're you're on, I'm trying to make sense of the world and how to make it right, how to make yourself right. And so you do that by indulging in the desires of yourself. You've run off to live however you want. Maybe you're open about it. You just kind of own that fact, or maybe you kind of do it in secret. But like the younger brother, like you'd rather have God's gifts. You'd rather enjoy God's gifts than God himself. You'd rather take what he's already given you by grace, a life to live, right? You've already, you'd rather take what he's already given you by grace and you'd want to take off with it and live away from the father, like the wayward son. You want to enjoy the benefits, but not the benefactor. But some of us, Some of you are older brother types, right? You're the older brother types. You're not self-indulgent. You're self-righteous. You're trying to make sense of the world and make sense of how to make it right, and you do that by complying, by being a good person, by working really hard, having the right answers, doing the right rituals, right? Those aren't all bad, but, but they're not what saves you. They're not what saves us. You see, Jesus, when he's telling this story, he's pointing out that both ways are wrong. Both brothers are lost. One is lost in self-indulgent hedonism. The other is lost in self-righteous religion, self-righteous works. The younger brother says the gospel is the way to get, like that. the younger brother, when he, when he left his, his father, like his idea of the gospel, of the way to get saved, of the way to make the world right, was by being really open-minded, being really progressive. And if you're too narrow-minded, then like you're out, right? You're wrong. The older brother, he's the one that's saying like his gospel, his good news is that the way to get saved, the way to, to make sense in, of the world and how to make it right is, is by good behavior, being a good person, doing good works. And if you do bad behavior, that's how, that's how you're on the outside. Jesus doesn't side with one or the other. He doesn't even find the middle ground. He has an entirely different gospel, an entirely different way of salvation. That's why the, the, for the first two centuries, for the first 200 years of the church, people didn't know what to call Christians because their, their belief system, their faith system was unlike anything else anyone had ever seen before. The Romans called the Christians atheists because they didn't worship God the way that anyone else worshipped a God. Jesus didn't find the middle ground between the two. His gospel, his way of thinking, his worldview was entirely different. It was entirely transcendent. He's saying the humble are in and the proud are out. The one brother tried to control the father's gifts by living a rebellious life. The other brother tried to control the father's gifts by living a really good life. But both were trying to be their own Lord and Savior. See, there's hope in Jesus for both self-indulging younger brothers and also the self-righteous older brothers. Jesus says it's not about doing the one or the other. It's about being humble and accepting a gift. How amazing is that, right? Maybe you're here this morning and you resonate with the younger brother. 
you've heard this invitation of the grace of God and you've come to the realization that your need to repent and to return to him. And if that's you, then know that you can come to him as you are. You can come to him empty-handed. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't even have to come with all the right answers. You can come with honest, skeptical questions. And I promise you, in the gospel, there's truly satisfying answers. You can, if that's you, then know that you can just, just come to him as you are. You don't have to earn salvation. You don't have to prove yourself. You can, it, it's just a gift to be received. There's no shame on the other side of the cross of Christ, only joy and life. Maybe you're someone who resonates more with the older brother. You've seen yourself more the older brother. You realize this morning that you think you've thought that you're better than you are. The grace of God reminds you that, that you're not. There's good news for you too. <laughs> good news for the older brother is that you don't have to obey to earn God's love and acceptance. You're already accepted in Jesus through repentance and faith. Now you get to live for God's glory. You don't have to. You're not burdened to. You get to. You're free to. He'll change you. You'll be free. You'll be liberated by that truth. You see, Jesus, the one telling the story, he's that third brother. He's the perfect brother. The Bible says that he's our older brother. He's the true older brother. He's the way that the Father runs to us. The Father ran to the wayward son. The Father ran outside the party to the older son. You see, Jesus is the way that the true Father, our good Father, runs to both. Jesus is how the Father runs to us. Jesus is how the Father embraces us. Jesus is how the Father kisses us, how the Father blesses us. Jesus is how the Father adopts us and accepts us and saves us. He's the one who clothes us with a robe of righteousness. He is the one who invites us to feast at his table for all eternity. It's a gift. God's grace is a gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove yourself. You just need to accept it and be wooed by it. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about King's Cross Church or make a donation, please visit kx.church. Here at King's Cross, we believe that worship means more than just listening to a sermon, and we encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. For Sunday morning meeting time and location for King's Cross Church, please visit kx.church. Thanks again for listening.